Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Hey, folks. So today we're going to talk about the psychology of a crisis, demystified. And this is part two of our series on the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Crisis and Emergency Risk Communication Manual. So if you haven't checked out part one, part one was what we did last week. Uh, That one explored crisis management communication principles and pitfalls. So be sure to check that one out, too. And, you know, all of this information that we're trying to share in this a uh, series of, of episodes related to crises and emergency communication. Uh, it, these are all things that you know we feel are not only very applicable right now in terms of the environment we're going through right now with uh, coronavirus, but also just in general, uh, when organizations and leaders face crises in their lives and in their organizations. So with regard to demystifying the psychology of a crisis, Chris, what are we going to talk about today? Well, Ben, we're going to talk about four ways that people process information during a crisis. Um, We're going to talk about mental states in a crisis, behaviors in a crisis, and addressing psychology in the crisis and emergency risk communication rhythms. So, you know, last episode, we talked about what that communication rhythm should develop into. But now we're going to talk about how the individual and group psychology matches with that communication rhythm. So that's a lot of crisis but um, for today. But it's important that leaders have a tool set and kind of a playbook to use during this time. You know, now's not the time um, or nobody has the time to do thousands of pages of reading and, and develop their own runner playbook here. Um, but that's what's great about the CDC's Prevention Crisis and Emergency Risk Manual is mm-hmm. that they've had teams of experts put this together. So this this is the Cliff Notes. It's not the shortest Cliff Notes <laughs> you'll read, <laughs> but but this is something that you can take and run with as something practical in your organizations and in your communities. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And in addition to, you know, thinking about this as a, a playbook of sorts, there is an actual manual like we are pulling f- directly from the CDC's uh, manual on all of this. So you can, if you're interested, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Of course, there is a chapter in this manual called Psychology of a Crisis. And we are following that that playbook and talking about it here today. Uh, because we think that um, it is a very solid evidence-based approach towards this entire topic. Uh, So we want to make sure that you have that at your fingertips and you have this in your ears to help you give, get a kind of an overview and a summary of that information. Yeah. And also before we launch in, let's just do a little housekeeping. So if you like the Indigo podcast, please give us five stars on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen. This is super important uh, for us to continue to reach a broader audience with evidence-based management thinking. You can share this episode or something about the Indigo podcast on social media. All of that kind of stuff really helps. Reach out to a friend individually and say, hey, I think you could use this information. And for those that have, thank you. Right. And, you know, there's just so much garbage out there. And we 
uh, try to put together information. We prepare extensively for these episodes, and we are trying to do something that uh, is helpful, is evidence-based, and really can be something that cuts through some of the garbage that's out there. So uh, if you don't think we are garbage, if you think we're good, (laughs) give us a a good rating and talk about us out there. Thank you. All right, Ben. So... Let's just get to it. Four ways people process information during a crisis. Yeah, so it's important for us to, you know, when we think about kind of the big picture of what we do psychologically when a crisis occurs, uh, you know, it's different than when we are in non-crisis mode. Uh, And, you know, we could get into all the the evolutionary psychology and the different biological reasons, perhaps, why all this occurs. Uh, But one way to think about it is, you know, if you're getting chased by a lion, (laughs) <laughs> out on the out <laughs> out in the Serengeti or whatever, uh, you know, you are not going to be thinking about all kinds of other things, right? There's going to be, uh, you know, you're going to be very focused uh, mentally on getting away from that threat. Uh, your biology is going to change in certain ways, right? Your your heart <laughs> is going to start pumping, uh, getting oxygen out to your muscles. Uh, you know, your digestive system is going to slow down. It is a time in which you are under serious stress, right? And, and your body is, and your mind is focusing you on getting you away from it or dealing with it uh, directly. Uh, now, we are not, most of us, I would assume, uh, running away from lions, tigers, and bears right now. However, our minds still tend to operate in that way when we face threats. Right. You're not going to come up with a new uh, version of existentialism while running for, <laughs> for your life. You just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, all all these things that we think of as luxuries in our lives, right, or you know, we take for granted, uh, they're they're going to go by the wayside. And one of those, uh, one of the the pieces of phenomena that that happens to us, and one ways in, in which we process information is we get really you know focused on things. Uh, we are not very good as humans in general at processing complex information, uh, many different types of information at once. And then when a crisis occurs, our tunnel vision becomes even more narrow. And so what we do psychologically is we simplify the messages that we're hearing. Uh, and, you know, we, we have trouble fully hearing information that happens. You know, this is where, you know, when, when something bad happens, you know, this is where a leader's got to look people in the eye and say, do this and be very simple, be very direct, because that's the, how you're going to get through to folks. Yeah, this is something that I use in our engagements with clients all the time, Ben. Mm. I, I bring up this uh, phrase called emotional flooding. Yeah. And and I use this saying, and I take my hands really wide out to the side. I said, you know, normal, you're walking day to day. There's no stress. Your vision's really wide. You can take in all kinds of sensory input. But the minute we say, hey, something's not going right in this organization, people immediately get flooded. And of course, you know, they should know that. They brought us in, right? <laughs> right? And it's like, wait a minute, you brought us? Because you, you guys recognize that everything wasn't going right. But their focus becomes super, super narrow. Mm-hmm. And you have to repeat messages all the time until somebody relaxes again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, simple messages are super important. However, we have challenges with this as leaders. Let's talk about COVID again, right? (laughs) There is nothing simple about this. This isn't like one plus one equals two. Well, you know, now we have new terms like social distancing, flattening the curve, you know, 
some people heard the term epidemiology for the first time, right? Mm -hmm. This becomes simple, and it's like, well, you know, these models are wrong. Well, actually, the models were started by a team of experts, and then we get more data, and our models get better over time. Well, all of a sudden, it it takes me three sentences to get to a not simple message, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the ways uh, that I've seen recently that has done this really well, and we'll put a link of this up in the show notes, is 538.com. This guy, Nate Silver, has this really cool website um, on math and models, but he partnered with a uh, comic drawing or sequential art type um, organization group that helped make a comic about how modeling uh, pandemics works and Mm -hmm. how that conversation works. And this was an excellent example of simplifying a complex message. Um, Yeah, the minute you get a PhD and say, well, if we take the N variable here and the data set with the, I mean, you lost everybody. Like, guys, (laughs) you lost everybody but for Ben. But Ben, we're running away from a lion, right? Right, Our vision isn't big at this time. This isn't the time to discover new thinking paradigms and examine existential processes for life thought. We're running from lions. So, like, to your point, Use simple messages as much as you can. And that, you know, explore different media. Like using a comic can be helpful. Mm -hmm. Talk about, you know, simpler language if you can. If you have to use key terms, explain those in simple phrases. Those things are super helpful. Not because people are a bunch of morons, although we've all met some morons out there. There's at least four in the U.S. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Four. But but we want to reach everybody, especially if you're a leader or if you're a you know lay leader in an organization or with your near community, using simple messages or amplifying simple messages is hugely important. Right, right. You know, and I'm rem- when you were talking about that, I was reminded of a uh, a pundit recently who I heard just going off the rails saying, you know talking about all these uh, epidemiologists and, and scientists who are looking at COVID and, and saying, we want to know when can we reopen the economy? We want to know, give me a date. And I'm sorry, that's just not how it works. Right. And, you know, so, you know, I think that reflects a desire for a simple message. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it can be very difficult on the part of when you have a complex problem to communicate that. But, you know, one way to perhaps communicate that effectively is saying, there is no certain date, and then perhaps providing some of the information about why and what we're doing to try to uh, get more information that can potentially help narrow down some of the the risks and benefits of, for example, you know, relaxing social distancing guidelines and so forth during this pandemic. Um, But yes, we simplify messages during crises. Our our tunnel vision kind of goes into overdrive. So as a leader, use simple messages. I I love that that pundit said, we just need a simple answer. It's like his the computer of his brain, which brains are not computers. We can get into that in another episode. But it's for, for sake of simplicity, the computer of his brain saying, listen, man, we got rid of CD-ROM drives years ago. Quit trying to shove a CD in me. <laughs> yeah. I need simple communication right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, when you hear those things, you're like, ah, it's so nuanced because you as a leader or as somebody within your community, you're dealing with all of these things. Um, 
you see some of those things. You've maybe marinated in some of these, and this can be used for any crisis. You've marinated in these facts longer than the average person. But when there's panic in the water, right, you got to use a simple message. Mm -hmm. And what's obvious to you, perhaps, as an expert or as a leader is not obvious to everyone. So simplify those messages. That's, you know, so four ways people process information during a crisis. Number one, we simplify messages. So use those simple messages as a leader. Number two is we hold on to current beliefs. Uh, you know, and, and I think this is fairly natural. We, you know, in a time of ambiguity and uncertainty facing threats, um, we're looking for some sort of stability and we're looking for some sort of certainty. So we hold on to things that we currently believe. And in a crisis, uh, the paradigm has shifted. And so leaders in those instances really need to uh, be mindful that people are, are going to resist their information, right? And so all of these messages really need to come from a credible source in order for pe to build that trust with whoever your audience is. If it's your, the rest of your organization, if you're a leader and your organization is going through a crisis, if it's your team, uh, if it's the entire country, whatever, uh, you need to have all these messages be coming from a source of credibility so that people can actually start to believe it and can then start to alter some of the beliefs that they may have at the moment. Right. So when you're in stress, you know, let's say an armed robber comes into your house and has you and your family all tied to the dining room table chairs. Right. And then they say, we really want to talk to your um, talk to you about your beliefs in centrally organized capitalism. We, we think they're <laughs> awful. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> first of all, I would probably laugh and I'd be like, this would only happen to me. Right. Um, but you're not open to reformatting your views in times of crisis. Mm -hmm. And and you can't get onto those nuance. That's why we need those simple messages, right? And so, but if you walked in, Ben, and you said, hey, listen, um, this guy is crazy, but really, you got to analyze that. Well, I, let's view that once the robber's out of the house, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... And everybody has their own ideas about disease and infection. You know, I think about some of Jonathan Haidt's um, research on these ideas of like cleanliness and that inform kind of moral foundations that he explores some of these ideas. You know, having a conversation on moral foundations and cleanliness about what somebody thinks uh, makes you dirty or sick or not probably is not going to work here. You know, we've seen this in people talking about 5G cell phone towers spreading coronavirus. Mm. Um, uh, as obtuse as that is, and that's obtuse, by the way, um, <laughs> for anyone that's still holding on to 5G fantasies and coronavirus, as obtuse as it is, now's not the time to have a nuanced conversation about that. Mm -hmm. um, some people you're not going to be able to reach. But like, and we see this with Dr. Fauci. Um, He's very reliable. Even mm -hmm. people that might think crazy conspiracy type stuff, um, because he has so much experience in this and because he goes so far back on dealing with infectious disease, his simple messaging and consistent pulse creates that credibility. And so as a leader, what you actually want to do is when you have, you know, hello, I'm leader so-and-so. And now for the voice of the expert, that's a good handoff. An even better handoff is, you know, I'm CEO so-and-so, and let me tell you why this expert is the right man or woman for this time 
and his excellence, this is a trusted, reliable source of information. Now, Mr. or Mrs. Expert, you know, those those can be really helpful for you. Right. So the, the thing here is, you know, we, we have beliefs about kind of the way the world works. We have our beliefs about how our organizations work, and we like to hold on to those. Uh, and when the yogurt hits the fan, those beliefs may not be true anymore, and we may need to rethink them. In order for us to have any hope of getting people to think something differently, any kind of messaging really needs to come from a source of credibility. And that credibility source might not be you as the leader. It, it may, as you were mentioning, be an expert on the, the topic at hand. So handing things off to, you know, the Dr. Fauci of the world, uh, whatever your crisis is, and saying, now you're going to hear from this person to, who is, you know, has X, Y, and Z credentials to provide you with a little bit more information. That's a helpful thing. So we simplify messages. We hold on to current beliefs. Uh, another thing that we do and in terms of how we process information during a crisis is that we, we you know, be, and in part of it's because we are holding on to these beliefs, is that we look for additional information and, opin and opinions. We, we try to verify what's going on. And, uh, you know, you can think about this in terms of, uh, you know, when any kind of disaster happens, uh, be it 9-11, be it the current pandemic we're going through, anything, you know, you're going to sit there, you're going to change the television channels and try to see if the different channels are saying similar things. You may talk to friends or family members and say, hey, have you heard this? Um, and maybe you're going to like talk to somebody or, or turn to a known leader or someone who you, whom you respect uh, to try to get more information. So the, the key here for leaders is to the extent that you can be consistent in your messaging. Uh, you know, don't change the story every 10 minutes about what's going on and what people should do, because that will a blow a hole in your credibility and B it's just going to be confusing for folks, um, as they're looking for more information. We're kind of in information seeking overload mode, uh, when we are going through a crisis. Yeah, so our brains are jalopies, right? <laughs> they, they're they're the high school beater card that you well, put six hundred dollars together for. I, 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 I would say that they're actually <laughs> amazing and astounding in many ways, but there are certain ways in which they're not, right? Right. So it's I like to think it's the brain of a jalopy. You know, you got to drive it a certain way. You got to change from third into fourth gear. You know, wiggle that stick shift just right to get it into gear. We have all these heuristics or rules of thumbs that we use to go about our day. We don't think through absolutely everything. And it's like, and that was the six-month period of my life where I reflect on emergency preparedness for fire. You know, you may never think about emergency preparedness for fire outside of have fire alarms to your house, get the kids and get out, right? Um that so that being said, you know, most of us did not have a rule of thumb or heuristic for pandemics. And so we are looking for additional information. Oh my God, this wasn't a crash or a business cycle. The economy just kind of stopped in a week. Um, well, I don't have a playbook for that kind of thing. You mm -hmm. know, you've we've all experienced that individually. Your followers, members in your community are experiencing that kind of stuff for sure. And that's why you see a lot of these conspiracies come out. Um, because people are looking for additional messages. And if that message is painful, it, it is so typical of our jalopy brains, which are well-developed for keeping us alive, but maybe not developed to think about nonlinear relationships about epidemiology models. 
bummer, our brains just need extra information. If that information is painful, we may reject it and look for an easier answer. To the point of that pundit, we need something easy now. Or mm-hmm. I need somebody to blame. Well, Verizon Wireless, shame <laughs> on you and your wicked 5G. You know, the, you know, it's easy to laugh at it, but I have a lot of sympathy. This is our brains reaching out from a place that we don't have a rule of thumb that's vetted on how to navigate these things. So if you're a leader or somebody in your organization or just somebody that wants to be helpful, make sure that you're using simple messages that are consistent, which means don't make up baloney early on. Yeah, yeah, because it's going to be very hard to be consistent if you make make huge mistakes early on with your with your accuracy, right? Yeah, so the, the simple, consistent message may be, this is what we know right now. This is the steps we're taking to learn what we need to know next. Mm-hmm. And you'll see reporters ask those questions. And it's actually okay, I think, that reporters ask the same question because they're seeing if you're going to waffle or seeing if they can get out a little skosh of extra information. But just be consistent. Hey, I'm glad you asked that again. Again, here's the simple message that we know right now, and these are next steps. And then you start to enter that you know, briefing communication rhythm and you can update with stuff as you go. And this is one of the things I've really liked about Fauci. Is he's like, well, what about this medication? We don't know at this time. Mm-hmm. When will we reopen the economy? We don't know, but I can tell you not soon. You know, these. I mean, these are excellent, simple messages. I mean, he could go off and give a dissertation, but those kind of press briefings in this thing, it's not the right or appropriate response when briefing a large group of people. That's right. So uh, the fit the, you know, we talk about these different ways in which people process information. You know, we simplify messages. We hold on to current beliefs. We look for additional information and opinions. And the last one is we believe the first message. Uh, and, you know, that first piece of information, we tend to trust a little bit more than other information, at least, you know, most of us. Uh, so the key here for leaders is be careful with your messaging, but release it as release those accurate messages as soon as you can. Um, get out there, uh, be simple, incredible, and be consistent. Uh, repeat yourself, uh, right? Because we need that. We need repetition for us to actually for things to actually get through into our our crisis infused brains. Uh, have you know accurate, consistent messages come from multiple credible sources, right? If, if, if you've got a group of experts, uh, you know, all saying similar things, that's going to be awesome. You know, we, you and I have worked with organizations that were going through some tough times and we've had, we, we've seen it where a, a leader will say one thing and then another leader in the organization will say something different or kind of backpedal on what the first person said. That is not good, right? That, that creates confusion and it, it uh, destroys some of the, the credibility and trust in the leadership. So uh, make sure you release those accurate Im- information uh, pieces, those messages as soon as possible. Right. And that means not overstating at the beginning. I just got to say that again. Mm-hmm. In the military, we have this thing called a war note, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and that stands for warning order. Um, right. And so let's say, hey, guys, we're going to have to go do a miss it mission. It's going to be a convoy mission, or it's going to be a smash and grab, or it's going to be a, you know, whatever the mission is, right? An ambush. We're going to go set an ambush or something. Um, these are just missions out of typical army infantry manuals, right? 
So you may not know where, you may not know how many people, but I can bring that first sergeant over and say, hey, first sergeant, I need second platoon ready for an ambush. Mm-hmm. So he can go like, guys, warning order, ambush. That means all the second platoon can go start getting their weapons ready, making checking their batteries and their night vision goggles, you know, going through all their checklists to, you know, they have enough to be preparing right now. That those accurate messages as soon as possible help people be prepared and do stuff. And it also makes them more psychologically open for subsequent information because they've already changed their lane of thinking. So if you say, hey, uh, America, we've got this COVID thing going on in China. We may need to respond. We're going to start talking about things. No threat as of yet. You know, then when you start having that conversation, you know, it is an iteration of something that's already been going on. Mm-hmm. But when you have to change people's thinking, oh my gosh, we got a lockdown now. You know, that's leadership. Some guy told me this. I can't remember. Um, said, you know, leadership's a bit like driving a flatbed truck with all your followers in the back. If you take too sharp of a turn, you'll spill them all <laughs> out on the street and the back wheel's going to run over some of them. You know, it's it's not good. Right. And so it doesn't mean you don't have to make those sharp right turns sometimes. But if you release accurate messages as soon as possible, you can make those transitions as smooth as possible. Right, right. Excellent. So we talked about these four different ways in which people process information during a crisis. Uh, Now let's talk a little bit about some of these different mental states that can occur during a crisis and a little bit about what people can do with regard to these mental states. And the first one is uncertainty. Uh, You know, we just don't really like uncertainty and ambiguity as humans. We, uh, it makes us uncomfortable, right? And we seek to, uh, you know, either uh, through gathering more information or through uh, just ignoring it, we try to, you know, deal with that uncertainty in various ways. And one thing that, you know, when that's important for us to remember as leaders during any time of crisis is you need to acknowledge that people are going through a tough time. You need to acknowledge to people that there is a lot of uncertainty and say, look, there are things that we don't know. And I know that that's really hard right now. You want answers. I want answers. We Here's what we're doing to try to get those answers. Uh, here is what we do know right now. Here is what we don't know right now. Those types of things can help to assuage some of these concerns that people have and, and put some boundaries on the uncertainty that they might be feeling. When you acknowledge that you have uncertainty as well, it creates a camaraderie with mm-hmm. your audience, uh, whoever you are speaking with, your neighbor, broader organization, a country, right? Mm-hmm. Guys, there's stuff we don't know, and it's frustrating. You can even acknowledge those emotions, right? But one of the things that you can do to help reduce that uncertainty is explain the experiments and the actions that you're taking to get the answers. This is what we know now. This is what we don't know. And these are our next steps. And maybe even introduce the cast of characters that will be conducting those experiments or exploring those next steps. Mm-hmm. Um Regular updates. Well, you know, we ran experiment one. It wasn't enough for us to go um, forward with a solution. So now we're running experiment two and the timeline looks like this. You know, this is where people kind of know what's going on. It can reduce that uncertainty Um, because if you're a lay person right now in Opelika, Alabama or Cleveland, Ohio or Tulsa, Oklahoma, 
Well, maybe you've been laid off your job. You're on un- unemployment right now, and you're not part of that team that's executing the solution other than doing your part as an individual citizen. You know, you're not at the CDC running experiments, but knowing what's going on helps you feel part of that process and it helps dial down some of that uncertainty. Right. And something that you don't want to do, and sometimes you'll see leaders actually see this pretty frequently. uh, You know, there's a lot of uncertainty perhaps in in a crisis or an emergency and a leader will get out there and they will make kind of bold promises you know, we're going to, we're going to fix this and we're going to fix it, you know, quickly in the next whatever, or, or claim more information than they really have about the crisis. And this can be, yeah. And sometimes I think this is not even malintentioned. Sometimes the leader is, is really trying to, you know, get their heads around the situation. But the reason that that's so damaging is that then you're setting up these expectations that very possibly will not be realized. And then that's going to hurt your credibility in the future. And it's also just it's it's, it's not being realistic about the situation. Right. Um, you need to realize that there's uncertainty, acknowledge it and tell people what you're going to do about it. Right. Right. So, yeah, the next one, uh, mental state. Right. So we had uncertainty. The next mental state that's always seen in crisis is fear, anxiety, and dread. Right, right. You know, it's it's natural for people to be uh, either in an organization or in a community when something unexpected happens um, for them to, you know, start to get a little bit scared and start to be anxious about the future, um, start to really be concerned about what's going to happen perhaps to them or to other people that they care about. And one thing that you can do as a leader in these situations is, you know, empathize with folks and say, you know, I understand that this can be frightening and that we haven't faced something like this. This is a new reality that we have to deal with. Um, and just be realistic with folks in that way. Um, and, you know, I think that also goes to your point earlier about that does help to kind of establish some of that rapport with, with your audience and saying, look, I I know how you feel. Uh, and you know, part of this is like, I think leaders just need to, especially in a crisis situation, need to kind of let themselves uh, take down some of their guard, right? Um, I think sometimes we are <laughs> right. <laughs> sometimes we are just trained as leaders to leaders are people who know stuff. They are people who are decisive. They are people who take action, and um, that may work when things are stable and you do, as the leader, actually know everything. But there are many times, especially in a crisis, by definition, that you will not know what to do, that you will not know what, what's going to happen next. And this is where, you know, the most, I think, self-secure leaders are able to say, hey, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but here's what we are doing. And I understand that you are all in a lot of pain right now. There's a lot of uncertainty. I feel you. <laughs> I understand where you're coming from because I feel that way as well. You know, you can think about any kind of um, leader who's dealing with a, a potential layoff situation, which I know is happening right now. I think these are things where you need to be empathetic. Yeah, this is not the time to, you know, people, we're going through a crisis, you know, buck up and stop being weenies, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know that's the most tone deaf approach. But you'll see, you know, so I can't show that I have uncertainty. So I must stand there and say, just take orders, Ben. Right. Uh, Or follow me. I'll lead you to the, I mean, just trust me. I haven't done any simple messages. I haven't put up any credible sources, but I will brute force tell you, (laughs) you must follow me off the cliff 
and believe that we'll sprout wings and fly, you know, that, <laughs> that, but these are postures where people's like, oh, well, I need to be the strength my organization needs right now. That strength really is a uh, Kung Fu type strength. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's Kung Fu is the strength through yielding, right? Mm-hmm. And, and yield to honesty, yield to embracing the uncertainty and communicating clear about, clearly about it embrace the emotions that are had at the time because if you don't deal with those emotions and acknowledge them and bring them up they're probably going to derail your communication message uh despite your best effort at being a strong person at the top right right and we need to also remember that when people are scared when there's a lot of fear um you know this can really make it a little bit more unpredictable in terms of how people are going to react. Um, sometimes people, when they're, when they feel fear, they, they get motivated and can take some actions that are actually helpful. Um, other people may freeze and it may prevent them from taking action. Uh, and in other instances, it may actually motivate people to act in a way that's not helpful. And so this kind of goes into, you know, something we'll talk about uh, a little bit more in the episode uh, here in a bit, but um, you know, giving people something to do, um, providing them with some consistent messages about what's what we do know is helpful and can assuage some of that fear. Um, and, and so, again, I think a, a key here is that communication is really doggone important. So this is a time because those emotions are happening under the hood. Mm-hmm. Is as a leader, you can model how t- how to deal with them in a better way by acknowledging. You know, I have this uncertainty or anxiety, or I'm really dreading the XYZ outcome. And this is what I'm doing right now. Um, You know, when you portray, so, you know, this is the communication piece. So you're being empathetic, you're acknowledging your emotions, then you're communicating, hey, I realize that this is the level of threat that we're facing. And you're accurate about that level of threat. And this is what I'm doing. I'm making sure that we're limiting who's going out the door of the house uh, to go to the grocery. I'm taking the recommended mask and gloves approach, you know, those kinds of things. This is modeling how to deal with emotions in a healthy way and modeling the kind of actions that you want people to do. So if you're a public official, maybe you wear your mask or are seen with your mask. Mm -hmm. I mean, those kinds of things can be helpful because not everybody has the best scripts for dealing with fear, anxiety, and dread. Right. I think that's really important, you know, and I, I come across this a little bit, I think, based upon, you know, my military experience and just things that I've been through and so forth, where, you know, I've been in some situations where there is probably an unusual amount of uncertainty, um, maybe a, a an increased level of danger, perhaps, um, as compared with the rest of the population. Um, and so sometimes I can take that for granted. Uh, when uh, when an emergency happens, uh, and I, I think it's very important to empathize with folks and realize that hey, not everybody has you know had the experiences perhaps that you have, um, and you need to empathize with people. Uh, so we've talked about you know the first mental state being uncertainty, a second one being fear, anxiety, and dread. A third set of mental states that people go through or can go through in a crisis has to do with these feelings of hopelessness and helplessness. And these are a little bit different from each other, but they are both um, reasonable reactions that we should anticipate. And hopelessness is this idea that, you know, n- nothing that anybody can do is going to improve what, what happens here. 
You know, it, that's that's hopelessness. And helplessness is um, I can't do anything to make the situation better or protect myself, right? So hopelessness is just in general, nothing can be done to make it better. Helplessness is, you know, I personally have no agency here. I can't do anything to protect myself or do anything. And, you know, as people start to get more scared and anxious and so forth, uh, they begin to feel more hopeless and helpless. And so this is a, a key thing that leaders need to remember and uh, potentially get ahead of. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, some if there's a meteor going to crash into our planet and wipe us all out by all scientific models in five minutes, well, okay. It is both hopeless and helpless. <laughs> Hold on to your butts. <laughs> right? So, <laughs> what in the world? Anyway. <laughs> so, so, yeah, sometimes, you know, you think about the economic crisis that we had before. You think about this time. Um, I remember listening to my grandfather's stories about World War II, uh, being an officer in the Corps of Engineers. Um but even in those dire times, there's places of hope and there's places of help, um, even if those are existential. So turning to your faith, turning to each other, bonding over common humanity. But the key thing here is you can't just wipe, being the strong leader, all that kind of stuff. You can't wipe away how people feel. That's mm -hmm. why people went and bought a bunch of toilet paper and hand sanitizer and, you know, couldn't get any chicken in the, in the grocery. Yeah. Um, but instead of eliminating those emotional responses, which is impossible, um, setting people on a course of action by being constructive. So one of the things is like, hey, listen, I know there's seven big mega packs of to toilet paper on the shelf, but if you want to be patriotic, just take one. You know, mm -hmm. that's why I can take these courses of action by not hoarding food and overburdening the supply chain and be patriotic to my person to my left and right, to fellow Americans, uh, people in my country. These symbolic actions um, help as we define stuff. So, you know, we have that term flattening the curve. You know, when people start to feel like rather than I'm doing this selfishly, I actually have a course of action, something that I can do to contribute to how we're responding as a nation, as a globe to this uh, crisis. Right, right. You know, I, I think, you know, some of the things that you could ask people to do, and this could, you know, not just COVID-19 related, but in any kind of crisis is, you know, let's say you, let's say your organization is facing some sort of large threat or some unexpected event that is um, not so great, perhaps for your organization, you can give people something to do, right? You can say, uh, you know, here's what I want you to focus upon right now. Here are some things that you should be doing with your teams and with your people. Uh, you know, you can create plans right now for X, Y, or Z. All of those things can help to reduce these possibilities of people feeling helpless and hopeless um, and, and give them something uh, productive that they can uh, can actually do in the face of the crisis. That's right. And if you need one, go to that drawer you have in your kitchen that's full of crap, right? That's full of garbage. <laughs> and you could clean that out. That's what I do when I stress, you know, I'm like, where's that junk drawer? I'm, I'm about to organize. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Well, then I, I'm sure it's uh, super organized right now. So um, that was talk? all a complete lie, by the way. That thing's <laughs> never getting clean. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to wait. We're waiting until that. 
when that actual meteor is coming and we have five minutes left uh, to live, then you're going to clean that darn thing. Um, so, so yeah, these mental states in a crisis, uncertainty, fear, anxiety, and dread, ho- hopelessness, and helplessness. And the next one is denial, which is not just a river in Egypt. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a perennial classic of bad <laughs> professor jokes. Um, <laughs> so... So denial, right? It happens for a variety of reasons. What are some reasons why people get in denial? Well, they may just not have enough information. Um, maybe they just didn't understand the, the message. Uh, they didn't. They weren't told that you know something to do. Uh, they may just deny it, right? They just may, for whatever reason, not trust the source and say, you know what, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, uh, and you know. When something similar happened in the past, here's what I did, and I'm just going to keep doing that, right? So, um, you know, when people are in denial, they oftentimes will, at least we hope, most of them will seek some further confirmation. They will um, want some more information to see if they're if they're truly thinking the right way. And so one way to do that is provide some access to additional expertise, um, give people a, a way to ask questions. Provide some information, perhaps, about how other people are responding to whatever's going on. Some examples. You know, if this is in your organization, say, hey, you know, here's what the marketing department's doing right now, and it's a really good example of something that we can do right now. Uh, You know, here's what they're doing over in HR. Um, Here's what ops is doing. Uh, If it's your country, right, you can say, you know, look look at this state and say, here's what they're doing, and this seems to be working well. There are ways that we can deal with this. Uh, and and that can help to break through some of the denial that you're seeing. Now, now there's always going to be people, perhaps, who um, just refuse to get their heads out of the sand. But uh, there is hope for a lot of folks. Yeah, these are the guys that, despite excellent satellite imagery of an impending hurricane or tsunami, are like, nah, my house is my house can handle it. You right. know, um, you know, the National Guard's out. Please, please evacuate. Nah. I'm good, you know, and there's always some numbskull that, you know, dies on on that hill. Mm-hmm. Um, another example of this and this. So people don't always look to experts. Sometimes they're so emotionally flooded. They look to the people to the left and right. And so if you're just a community member right now affirming, hey, listen, that person's actually not an expert. Let's go and see what the experts are saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about this one medium article that was put together by this guy. And it had, you know, pictures from models. It had stuff from the CDC. And it was, you know, beautifully woven narrative that all went through there. It actually got picked up and uh, Ingram and Hannity, you know, retweeted it. It went super viral. Everybody's looking at it. And and then it took some epidemiologists to come and say, listen, this wouldn't pass the muster of epidemiology 101 in college, undergrad. Mm. And they had to go through and deconstruct it. So one of the things, we have access to so much information. And then when our brains, a jalopy of our mind, wants to be in denial or doesn't know how to process that stuff, you feel hopeless, helpless, all these things, you start to construe these narratives. This is actually a healthy feature of your brain. You're going through these sense-making. We did a whole podcast on sense-making around this stuff. This is lay people's minds going through this sense-making process. But then these experts had to debunk this massively ornate narrative 
that was just completely garbage, right? Mm. You know, Medium, and I love Medium because it gives a platform for people to publish, right? But what it doesn't give is like, is this numbskull know what the heck they're talking about, right? Right. Well, that that speaks to, I mean, the, the barrier for producing information that's mass, that's accessible around the world is is nil now, right? So, um, like, I can go publish something on Medium and say all kinds of stuff. It's not, it there's no barrier to um, to doing that. And so, um, yeah, so the... the um, the the availability of information is a is a two edged sword. I'll say, right. And so and so, not only do we have availability of that information, we're seeing experts readily. It is easy for a layperson to duplicate the tone and vocabulary. It's easy for them to get charts and pictures from you know credible sources, World Health Organization, CDC, and it's possible for them to make a connect the dots narrative that's complete garbage and false. So when you're in denial, your brain is looking for a lot of those kinds of things. And you can be hijacked by the wrong narratives because of your denial. So if you're a layperson in the community and somebody says, hey, that's a really interesting article. Let's Google if there's any criticism of it, right? Mm -hmm. Let's see if there's some experts. Okay, this is a layperson who's put together something that's in a, you know, like Nate Silver did with that comic on uh, statistical modeling of pandemics. Um, well, hey, that seems really compelling. Our brains can easily be hijacked by stories. We love narrative. But then let's go fact check that narrative and say, you know what? This actually measures out with what the experts and consensus is. I think this is an excellent thing to share versus oh, this is such an emotionally appealing way out or way to look at it that's easy that feeds my denial, my jalopy of my brain tendencies. Um, and then we're going the wrong direction based on what some numbskull put on the web. Right. So, you know, another idea that's, it's, this might be a slight tangent, but I think it's important to note is that, you know, when we are evaluating information, if we are in denial, perhaps, and we're looking to experts, we need to try to understand what types of expertise people have and whether or not that expertise matches what they're trying to give an opinion about. So there's, um, you know, this, there's actually a word for this idea of, it's called ultra-crepidarianism. And ultra-crepidarianism is this habit of people who give opinions or advice that are outside of one's own knowledge. Uh, you know, this is the economist giving epidemiology advice. This is the, um, you know, I'm I'm a business professor, but I do, there are lots of things about business that are not in my domain of expertise. So I sometimes will have people who assume that I know th a lot about corporate finance, right? And I'm like, no, go ask my wife. So she's a <laughs> she's a finance PhD. So uh, you know, <laughs> so I. I there's this habit, and I think it can be very tempting when you do have a lot of expertise about one area to start to kind of go outside of your bounds because people do come to you, and it can feel good when people come to you for advice and so forth. You need to be very careful if you are an expert to say, this is what I know. That's not really my lane. Here's somebody who you might want to listen to about that. Yeah, so, and I think this is just my conjecture, but... Here's a narrative to hijack your jalopy brain. You know, back in the day, it's only been so many decades that we've had broad access to post-secondary school education, you know, undergrad, grad school, PhD, right? And it used to be in communities that doctors and lawyers 
were the only people with a graduate education in a mm-hmm. lot of towns, right? And so people went to them, and it's totally reasonable before the internet and whatnot. You know, Dr. So-and-so, what do you think about this? Because that person had been through some kind of thinking training, right? You know, some kind of basic philosophy of medicine or whatever, and they might have more cognitive tools to assess certain things. Mm -hmm. And we still see that, you know, just because somebody's a doctor doesn't mean they're an infectious pandemic disease expert. Right. Right. You know, they're just a mechanic of the body, an amazing mechanic. But if you sat down and said, all right, let's walk through this really high level math and, you know, help me understand the errors in this model. A lot of doctors aren't going to be able to hang. And I see this all the time because they enjoy and I'm not, you know, my dad has taught residents for years and years and years. Uh, He was a longtime doctor, Um, you know, worked with medical schools, all that kind of stuff. But um. They have these ideas, right? And so I'm not picking on doctors. Doctors are wonderful. Doctors are great. I just, before I get a bunch of stones in my email. Um, (laughs) But I'll see experts who enjoy that community prestige. And they're asked about things all the time. And they love to step up to that podium. But the minute you put them in front of a real infectious disease expert or a researcher, right? Because there's difference in an MD, an MD, PhD, and just a PhD that does nothing but research. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll see this also with business professors who will, you know, wax eloquently on this, that, or the other thing. But you say, all right, man, well, let's, let's put you on a panel with some other PhDs that have experts in this, but very quickly, they downshift their broad claims. Right. 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 And, and it's, it's just because, you know, you are sense-making, you are super intelligent, you try to press out there. However, you got to give yourself a reality check, especially during times of crisis of saying, you know, this is what I know. That's what being a professional is about, right? Acknowledging what you know and what you don't know and being wise enough to know the difference there. Don't go to your chiropractor for advice about COVID-19. Right. Unless he's like, hey, listen, (laughs) I'm glad you came here. Let me pull up the CDC's website and You know, this is where you start pointing to this is where people, regardless of your level of expertise, right, Um, you can say you you can affirm that better behavior. I am not an expert in this, but let me tell you how I go to find where the experts are. And you can start setting up and improving the way people think about the broader world and how to navigate these challenging times. Right, right. So we've been talking about these different mental states during a crisis. And, you know, one just final note on that is this idea of panic. And, uh, you know, people actually rarely act um, totally irrationally during a crisis. Uh, It's not actually that common. Um, It's just important to remember that people do act differently during non-emergency situations than they do during emergency situations. People have these um, fight or flight reflexes or tendencies. Uh, They also oftentimes will have a a freeze tendency to not do anything. Uh, And so that's just something to keep in mind. People also don't like to be told that they are panicking (laughs) or or say, like, don't panic. Right. Um, (laughs) It's just because it feels like. You know, well, there's kind of it's it's kind of a pejorative term. Like, you know, no one wants to be th- thought of as the panicker, right? So, um, <laughs> I think just as a leader, keep that in mind, right? A panic state, a real panic state, not I'm concerned or I'm feeling a little overwhelmed here. A real panic state is emotionally exhausting. You mm-hmm. have so many chemicals, but people can't maintain that for a long time. 
So if somebody, if you notice somebody in a panic, you know, that you just kind of triage a little bit, give some breathing room, seldom, you know, hey, now if somebody storms a theater with a gun, okay, you know, panic can set in. That's helpful. That's going to, you know, that's your body kicking in and, you know, you're not going to form a committee and decide what to do at that moment, right? So panic does play an important role in our life, but if you're somebody who's not panicking and panic isn't the right response right now, give that person some room. It, it's nigh impossible that, for them to physiologically maintain that state for forever. When they're calmed down, that's when you can start interjecting some of that, you know, reasoned thinking into the conversation. Right, right. So let's move on now and talk uh, briefly about some behaviors that can occur during a crisis. And one of the first ones is that People may seek special treatment, uh, you know, if they, especially if they have the means and the access to do so. Uh, they may have a sense of privilege. They may try to um, start to find or try to find different ways to benefit themselves personally. You know, this is why, for example, when there are scarce resources and a lot of uncertainty in an organization, we'll oftentimes see organizational politics start to increase. You know, people are trying to maneuver and trying to get get things that are going to be beneficial for them personally. So that's just something to be aware of as a leader dealing with a crisis. Yeah, you know, and I can't remember the exact terms, but the Queen of England had something really good to say. She said, I hope after this something, I'm paraphrasing grossly, but I hope that after this crisis, we can look back and feel good at how we behave during it. Mm, that's um, great. And I'll have to go find that exact quote and put it in the show notes. But if you're, you know, and you see this, the wealthy people going to get tests when nobody else can get tests. Right. The wealthy people, you know, those people or whatever. Um, people will remember that stuff after this crisis is done. Mm-hmm. Oh, you you made sure that you got on the lifeboat rather than your followers or you know, what you did with pay or any, you know, stock buying maneuvers during, you know, special knowledge of the pandemic, all that kind of stuff um, isn't going to look good for you after this. It's, it's going to look horrible. However, in that panic state, right, you can either be a leader, a person of character, somebody that leads and is, a, you know, moves with integrity at all levels, lay person to super executive, Right. Don't seek special treatment. It's Don't do it, it. It, it. It's logical. We understand the impulse. Um, but that's not being a real team. And it's not who, um, well, when we talk about this podcast being, it's about human flourishing at work and beyond. That's not about human flourishing at all. Nope, not at all. So another behavior that can sometimes occur is what we call negative vicarious rehearsal. Uh, and again, we're, you know, we're pulling all of this directly from this uh, wonderful document, The Psychology of, of a Crisis, from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And you know, what they talk about here is this idea that when people are going through a crisis, um, they oftentimes will start to imagine uh, how they would respond. You know, if this were to happen to me, what would I do? And that can be a good thing. It can help in many cases, to help prepare people for what they would do. It may actually reduce some of their uncertainty and, and anxiety. Uh, and, you know, as a communicator, uh, you could actually encourage this by saying, you know, I want you to think about what you could do. If, even if you're not affected yet, you could create an emergency plan of action, right, according to these guidelines. Um, one potential downside of this, though, is that some people 
may start to, uh, you know, be what we call, you know, the, the worried well, you know, so in, in the event of a public health emergency, oh, I, I, I had a little tickle in my throat, I need to get a COVID-19 test, right? And they may start to heavily tax the resources that are available um, for dealing with the crisis. And, you know, so to address this, you know, communicators need to um, be very careful and give some of those simple actions about what needs to happen uh, and try to maybe segment their target audience saying, um, here's what you need to do if you're if if this is what's happening to you or if you're in this location uh, and here's what you need to do uh, and kind of an alternative action for people who are not perhaps directly affected. Uh, so you want to be careful with this one. Uh, it is a behavior that can happen. Um, a third behavior is stigmatization, and this is you know because uh, we like to have we like to blame someone for for what happened uh, or what is going on either in our organizations or in our communities. Um, I mean, you heard some horrible stories early on, and I don't know if this is still happening, but it's pretty horrible um, where people who perhaps looked like they were of Asian descent were being attacked and either verbally and or physically uh, at the beginning stages of the COVID-19 outbreak um, because it was this idea that they were being stigmatized because, you know, the the virus originated in China and so forth. So um, this is something that you need to be very careful about as well. Yeah, our words, you know, inclusion isn't a fluffy hippie concept that we get around a fire and sing kumbaya about. I mean, it's actually life and death for a lot of people. And so when we talked back in last week in the episode about the communication rhythm, one of the things is rehearsing your message. So when you're out there talking as a leader, um, you don't accidentally say something that increases the stigmatization of minority groups or groups that could be affected by, you know, well, the Alabama virus. And so, you know, I lived in Alabama for a bunch of years. You know, now it's like, hey, are you from Alabama? Or people with a Southern accent, you know, start being excluded from group get togethers or something. You know, that's not helpful. You want, as a leader, as a community member, when you got to respond to crisis, you want to fire on all cylinders. That means leaving nobody out in the cold. Um, so just rehearse those messages. Make sure that you're not amplifying uh, stigmatization. Well said. You know, so there are also a number of harmful actions that can be brought about by some of these psychological issues. Uh, you know, so, for example, um, you may start to misallocate treatments in a public health type of situation based on demand rather than medical need. Uh, you may have to deal with um, or maybe even, you know, be involved with creating some of these damaging rumors and hoaxes. Um, that's a very important thing to try to avoid and something that you've got to get in front of. You know, you mentioned how, um, you know, there's a crazy rumor, I, I suppose, that uh, 5G networks are somehow involved with spreading coronavirus. Is that the, that the rumor? It's silly. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't make any sense to me. Anyway, I don't want to be uh, participating or perpetuating that, that craziness. But um, what you do need to do as a leader is realize that these things are going to happen. People are gonna, going to probably uh, be in such information-seeking mode that they're going to fill in the gaps with rumors. I heard this. This might be what's happening. Um, maybe have certain hypotheses about what's going on. You need to start to counter those types of things uh, as a leader in your communication. Yeah, absolutely. And so one cool thing about crisis is there is a lot of positive responses here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, 
I remember looking at this and, you know, maybe this can bring us together as a country, as a globe better. You know, Mm -hmm. if we frame and communicate right, you know, families, organizations, communities can really come together. You know, that's where people stop, you know, get out of the rat race for a minute and say, you know, I'm going to leave that extra pack of toilet paper for somebody else. I've got enough. Or, you know, these are awesome, awesome things that happen. You know, anytime you're in military training or getting ready for a deployment, going through a deployment, you really come together as a team. These kinds of situations can create that at all kinds of different scale. That's right. That's right. Definitely can be some positive outcomes following a crisis. Um, you know, another behavior that can happen in a crisis, and we won't get into this in too much detail, but, you know, it can, it can affect our risk perception and how we, you know, different types of risks that are presented to us, we perceive them differently. So, you know, for example, uh, when we are presented with a statistical risk, um, we oftentimes tolerate that better than a risk that's presented by an individual. So, for example, if we say, you know, X percent of people are vulnerable to this type of outcome, um, that's something that we can usually, we won't have a gross overreaction to that versus let me tell you the detailed story of this one person who died a horrible death, right? Um, those types of things can overshadow the actual uh, threat that's being perceived. Um, one thing that you need to do as a leader as, or as a, a public official in these types of situations is, you know, realize that when people face these risks, they they oftentimes will be angry and they'll be outraged. Don't dismiss it. Um, realize that, you know, we there, there are great demands for information that are caused and um, you need to deal with that and acknowledge it. Yeah, so risk, and as a communicator, you know, like stats versus anecdotal stuff. I remember several neighbors saying, you know, when this movie star got it, it, you know, it finally became real to me. (laughs) And, you know, my, the way I think, I'm just like, are you kidding me? What about all this data? Well, they needed that anecdotal story. So you maybe want to use both. Use Mm. the statistical, use the, you know, hey, you know, Billy across the street's dad passed away, you know, that these things, you can actually use some of this stuff to enhance your message in a positive way. But if we were all super disciplined robots like uh, Data off of Star Trek, Mm -hmm. you know, well, okay, we'd be calm, cool, collected and just, you know, you know, play, not play against the house, so to speak. Right. Um, But we're humans. We have reality, you know, no spouse wants to hear. It's like, well, when I made a list of 65 factors, you came up as a completely copacetic match for my future life. Right. You know, that's a total drag. (laughs) Right. So, so, but when you're in those risk perception things, because of all this kind of stress and crisis mode, you just got to realize your audience isn't going to see things as clearly as um, a statistician might in a closed environment. Right, right. You know, and and, uh, different risks are perceived in different ways. So for example, another one I think is is interesting is, you know, we tend to like reversible risks better than uh, permanent ones. You know, so an example here that the CDC provides is, you know, we will more likely tolerate having a broken leg versus having an amputated leg. Although, (laughs) yeah, I I saw, you know, I can't remember is some Yahoo on TV was talking about when it comes to the economy, all the old people are ready to die. And mm. and it's like, I don't know if he surveyed all the old people. <laughs> you know? And and 
And how, you know, like the the middle class, you know, how do you define old? Is it 55 or older, 75 or older, you know? And, but this is just an example of somebody not perceiving risk accurately. And that's also a false choice. We don't have to, you know, choose between bajillions of people dying or having a life ever again. Like that, that's a false choice, but you can see that nature of risk perception and why that message might appeal to somebody because they're not in their, you know, right minds. Their brains are hijacked by, you know, I guess I'll coin the jalopy effect, right? It, it's just not a disciplined way of thinking. Right. So why don't we move on now and, and talk briefly about how some of this plays into this overall communication and emergency risk communication rhythm that we talked about in the first episode. So, you know, in the preparation phase, what you've got to do is you, again, you need to have open, honest flow of information to the public. Uh, That's really important in the preparation phase. Uh, In the initial phase, when stuff's just starting to happen, don't over reassure people. We talked about this earlier. Don't don't say everything's going to be fine in a week if you're not sure that it is. Uh, Acknowledge that people are going through uncertainty and say, hey, here's how we're going to try to find out more uh, and be consistent in that messaging. So those are some things to think about during the preparation and initial phases of that rhythm. Right. And so when I'm, you know, I've got a couple clients that I'm working through some of this stuff, you know, they've been getting their PPP loans or not getting them because they got all given out. And I see a lot of, you know, some of these guys have contract CFOs that are in and they'll reassure or not reassure. And nobody actually knows. And how do you know that we're in the initial phase of a crisis is you'll see the experts, people like Fauci saying, we don't know yet. Yes, it would be nice to know. However, uh, that's that kind of stuff. And and that's also how you know you have a trusted advisor in that person is when they're willing to say and acknowledge that their uncertainty at this point in the process. Right. And so then when you are in this more maintenance phase of the rhythm, this is where you can you know continue to acknowledge people's fears. Uh, you can express wishes, wishes for what you would like to see. Um, give people something to do, right? This helps with that idea of people feeling hopeless or helpless. Um, acknowledge that, you know, you're all going through some tough times and, you know, give some anticipatory guidance. So saying, hey, here's what might be happening next and what we could anticipate us doing if that occurs. Yeah. Acknowledge that you're in the same space. Hey mm-hmm. guys, we are all in this together that, you know, we are all homeschooling our children. Oh my gosh raises for every I think people will be able to maybe get some raises for some teachers after this you know (laughs) you know there's some empathy there but acknowledge that we're all in this together um and then what's the final one Ben final one is during the resolution phase so this is when you need to make sure that you're keeping the commitments that you expressed earlier people are going to remember all the things that you said perhaps during the preparation and initial phases where you're saying this is what we're going to do um you need to keep those commitments because that's going to continue to build your credibility. Right. And just to keep the driving motif, since we had jalopy, people can tell if they're riding in a jalopy of your communication and behavior as a leader. You know, we've all gotten in the car and be like, wow, this person really doesn't look both ways before they pull out in the traffic. Right. Right. <laughs> or, right. or this person's lanes changes are jerky as all get out. I, I, I've, I'm scared, right? I'm not. I'm not driving the car. I feel out of control. You know, matter of fact, there is this one person in college. You know, horrible driver. Um, I would not drive with this person. 
I, after my first ride, I say, hey, hey, let's ride back. I'm like, nope, I've actually called somebody else to come get me. Um, and no offense to you, I just don't feel comfortable riding with you. <laughs> and and it, it was horrible. Like, we almost got hit four times in the course of a 10-minute trip, and it was just from lack of awareness, and their driving skill was garbage. Um, and I just didn't want to die. That person, oddly enough, is still alive today. Uh <laughs> I don't under I don't get it, but you know you're building that car and your you know your followers are driving along with you, and if you mess it up in these phases, the preparation, the initial phase, not over reassuring, maintenance. You know if you're changing your message, changing out your host of experts all the time, you're not keeping your commitments. That makes people that are riding in your car super uncomfortable. And, That's right. You know it's a it's a continuum, right from God awful to super excellent. Mm -hmm. Aim mm -hmm. for that more excellent place. Yes, absolutely. So today we talked about the psychology of a crisis demystified. And we talked about these four different ways in which people process information during a crisis, some different mental states people go through in a crisis, behaviors that you can expect in a crisis, and how you can address psychology in this crisis and emergency risk communication rhythm. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.